Welcome to Smart Chickens, a creative B2B SaaS podcast where we try to hatch and explore new innovative demand strategies to drive revenue. In our episodes, we have authentic, non-scripted conversations with B2B SaaS founders and leaders, where we cover deep dives into their professional journeys and uncover the strategies they use or follow in building and working within high-growth SaaS companies. So welcome, Gene, uh, co-founder and CEO of Limbless to Smart Chickens. It's a podcast dedicated to SaaS demand gen founders and leaders where we deep dive into the founder's journey, their story, as well as what are the innovative strategies they're using to grow their business and more importantly, grow their clients' businesses. So welcome. Thanks a lot for having me, Jenny. I'm super happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. So, you know, I I have been following you for some time uh, as well as 8,000 other folks (laughs) that you've got (laughs) in your client base. And I think you have a very unique, you know, journey or background journey, which I think is important when looking at how a SaaS company grows is always looking at the people behind it, right? And also what was their, their aha moment to get into SaaS. So if you could describe a little bit of what your background is and how you kind of get, got into this five years ago, six years ago to building out Lemlist. Yeah, definitely. So essentially like my parents grew up on a farm in the South of France and they didn't like study or get any degree. So when they got my brother and me, they, they kind of like sacrificed a lot so we could get really a proper education. And for them, you know, like uh, business or studying business was not about like getting an education for them. I needed to study science. So I became like an engineer, chemical engineer. And after that, because, you know, like I never really had the chance to to travel with uh, with my family. During my studies, I, I worked on the side, like I did pretty much every job from babysitting to salesman to like pretty much everything. And uh, essentially I, I traveled for a year and I was using social network to stay at people's home for free. And when I wanted to stay longer, you know, in some places, I would just like work in exchange for accommodation. So I worked in Colombia in a coffee farm. I was an English teacher in Bolivia. I worked in permaculture in Costa Rica. And when I came back to France, I was like, okay, I really loved and enjoyed this freedom, you know, I had during this entire year. And to get the same feeling, I felt like starting a business would be like the good path. But to start a business, you know, you have to be good at business. So I thought, okay, because I'm, I know I'm good at studying, I, I'm going back to school and I'm going to get like a, a master in marketing. So I was accepted into the best uh, business school in France to study marketing. I started my first business with my dad. So my goal at that point was, okay, my dad sacrificed a lot. We're starting a business together. I became officially the best guy of the family uh, by getting to that prestigious school. Uh, so now it's the time for me not to like uh, disappoint him. So I was kind of like putting a lot of pressure on him because for me, whenever we would uh, launch the website officially, we would get like tons of orders. I had built a community around like Paris and the brand was called like uh, Paris Rest en Rêve, which stands for Paris Remains a Dream. And essentially, like uh, I thought that by having this community, I could drive tons of sales to when we launched uh, the, the website. When we launched it, we only got six orders. And after that, I felt like shit, you know, I was like, damn, like how exactly am I going to be like my big plans of having this huge launch, hundreds of orders and a lot of word of mouth afterwards went into the garbage because six orders would not generate word of mouth for your brand. So after that, you know, I was feeling really bad. I had disappointed. I like, I had let down my dad. Looking at him was reminding me of, you know, like kind of this failure. Our relationship kind of suffered. 
And a friend of mine asked me, you know, if I wanted to join him on a, a new adventure of building an agency to help people find clients. So I knew that I had the, the, this issue, you know, like of not being able to find customers. And he really know, he really knew at the time, like how to do this. So I was like, okay, my friend can really like teach me a lot of things. And this is a problem that I faced. So I know it's real. Let's go, you know, like, let's start doing this. So we started like doing a lot of outbound prospecting. So reaching out to people in order to, to get clients for them. And, uh, and after like a, a few months, we generated like uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars for our clients, then millions. And then eventually, you know, I was like, okay, I've, I've learned a lot in this kind of like past year, but I feel like all the tools on the market right now are very not representative of what's the day-to-day -day of a sales rep. Everyone's telling you, put yourselves on autopilot with our software. The truth, it's not like this, you know, like whenever you do sales, you have to build relationship. To yeah. build relationship, you need personalization. Personalization takes time. So how exactly can we build the best software to allow for extreme personalization and help people really build warmer relationships? And in 2018, that's where I met my two co- I, I met Vianney and Francois in 2017. And in 2018, we decided to launch Lemlist. So three years later, we have tens of thousands of users worldwide. We're growing at a two-digit month over month. We're like a multi-million dollar company. So it's, it's been an exciting journey, but I guess we're yeah. going to get back to that. <laughs> no, no, it's incredible. And thank you for sharing that because I think just like any success story, like as an analogy, the, the team that wins a World Cup, people just on ESPN or FIFA see the highlights, but they don't see all the struggle, the practices, the defeats, right? And so I'm glad you're sharing that because it's not always about success in the headlines that you could read in TechCrunch. And I know you've been covered by a lot of SaaS, you know, industry. And I love it that you said recently, I think um, that, you know, the measurement of the, of a business, especially in SaaS, shouldn't be measured by how much they get bring in from VCs for a, a series A or series B. And you said, I, I think, quote, you know, that you can measure on profitability, on the happiness of employees, on, you know, how much you're really impacting as value to your clients through your software. And that's a unique, and I don't know if maybe it's because your 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 you know the 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 background that you just mentioned kind of shaped you and your part your your founders into thinking this way, um, because as you know, 2020 hit everyone hard with a pandemic, but certain industries, SaaS being one of them, was given an injection and almost it helped accelerate digital transformation across all industries. So the lemlists of the world were going to benefit. The, you know, gong.io's of the world are going to benefit. You name the SaaS company, they're all either getting VC money thrown at them and, and or just in growth scale, right? But it's interesting that you have that outlook. You remind me a little bit of a founder of Moss, you know, and, and now he's Spark Toro. Yeah, Rand uh, Fishkin. Yeah. Yeah. Rand went through that, didn't go down the VC, you know, and then wrote a book about it, which is an interesting book if you haven't read it, right? Yeah, yeah, love and, it. <laughs> yes, I love it too. And then now he's got Spark Toro, very, you know, just two team founder, bootstrapped, have some a different type of arrangement in terms of investment and capital. But yours is amazing in that it's been bootstrapped. So take us back to how you've been able to accomplish that and that whole, I think your background when you talk about community, the one thing that I think really separates you guys outside of obviously your software that it does what it's, you know, delivers on the promise is that you've taken the time and your team to build an incredible, how, how did the, 
you know, unpack that a little bit for us. How, how did you guys think about it? How did you strategize about it? And, you know, how, yeah, how definitely. You so I, I'm going to be like entirely transparent on every single step with uh, no bullshit, pardon my French, but it all started, you know, in 2018. At first, you know, we wanted to raise money, like, because for me, when I was checking out the media, I was like, okay, if you want to be successful, you need to raise money. That's the only path to success. I started talking to VCs for maybe a couple of weeks. I met like 15 different VCs. And then they were all telling me like, you are no one. Like, we don't know you, but you are in a super competitive space. You'll never make it, et cetera, et cetera. And on the side, I had onboarded a few customers to Lemlist. At that time, it was early beta. And I received this message from one of our customers telling us, AG, like, thanks a lot for your help. Just closed a $20,000 contract. It will allow me to hire like someone new from the team. This is awesome. And then I was like, first, I'm super happy for you. But then I'm like, fuck, you know, like we're not charging you for the software and we should. <laughs> so, so I went from that and, and then I was like, okay, do you really want to focus on talking to VCs who don't really know and the market you're in and what you're capable of doing? Or do you want to keep providing value to people who actually acknowledge all the things that you're doing for them and kind of like change their life? So I decided to focus on the second. And very like quickly, we launched on Product Hunt, got number one product of the day. So we received a lot of users then we launched with um, another company called AppSumo back in the day. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, Noah which, Kagan. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Great. So we got like in two weeks after launching with AppSumo, we were making like $160,000. It's a one-time one fee. But so AppSumo took 70% of that, which essentially left us with 48K. But it's still good, you know, whenever you're launching, especially because we launched the company with $1,000. So $334 each. And essentially, like at that time, I was the only one doing support, so customer support, sales, and marketing. And because I had like way too many people asking me questions, etc., I was like, okay, I need to create and build a community. So I started like a, a Facebook group. I started answering questions over there. And step by step, I could feel like people, you know, really engaged in the videos that I was sharing, in the tips that I was sharing. And it felt like I was communicating with way more people through only one channel, which I kind of loved. So at first, you know, I, I didn't have in mind to create like the biggest community around sales automation that we, we have right now. It was more about, okay, I want to provide value to people because I'm kind of sick to see all these articles online, which are stating that, yeah, use this template and you're going to be like a millionaire. Like, as you can see, you know, on blog like HubSpot or things like that, where Obviously, they are really good in SEO, so search engine optimization. So yeah. their article will, will always come up on top. But the truth is like the quality of the content is not there. The all sales, all sales article have been written by people working in marketing, which is quite funny. You know, it's like uh, <laughs> you, you've never done like sales and marketing. First of all, they don't like each other a lot. And on top of it, it's like it feels like you write articles for something you've never done, which sure. to me, is, it's crazy. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. and, and we, we approach things in a very, very different way. So I started like sharing every single week. So every single week I was launching campaigns with Lemlist and mm -hmm. I was taking like the, the best campaigns I launched and explaining to our users why exactly did it work. So I started this series for 20 weeks in a row. Yeah. And early on, you know, like we, we started to see like people 
were really amazed because like Guillaume is sharing his templates, you know, it's like fully transparent. He's sharing like value bombs all the time. And, and for me, it was really like, okay, every single week it was challenging because I was like, okay, I need to find a new approach. I need to find something different. I need to test things. And step-by-step, step, we started building really, really a lot of trust with a community. I consider the community as a family. That's why it's called Lemley's family, because mm -hmm. I just, even in the way I talk or in the way, you know, I express myself, I'm like, it's, it's no bullshit. You know, I will never tell you like uh, that something is like this if it's not. It's just right. like the way I am. I'm more like straight to the point and, and I don't really like fluff and everything. And, and later on, you know, like um, with this community, we, if, if you go back in 2018 and you ask any sales rep in the world, like, can you share your your templates you've used in your cold email campaign, like people would say, no, it's my secret sauce. It's my secret weapon. I'll never share it. <laughs> now, back now, right now in 2021, we have built the biggest hub yeah. with real cold email templates from real users with real results, mm -hmm. something you would never see anywhere. And this is because we built trust. For years, we built trust with our users and now they are happy to share and give back also. You know, I, I love that you're talking about that full transparency community and I, I've been on it and I've even used it. And I love that, yes, people put in their real cold, cold email templates. They put the good and the bad, like what worked, what didn't work, what the results were from Lemless using it. And to your point, really, there is no secret sauce anymore. There, you know, everyone thinks they have a secret sauce, but it's not real. You know, everyone's trying to go after similar markets. The, the five different buyer personas in a committee that have to decide on buying XYZ software. 90, as you know, 90% or 85% of the buyer's journey is done on demand self-service by that buyer. So he or she who's looking to buy, whether it's Lamlist or Gong.io or Drift or whomever, they've already done their homework. Now they're just trying to, you know, validate who they can trust more, where their peers might be signaling that, hey, these folks are the real deal. Their software is what it, you know, what it, what it, what it, it says it, it does and delivers, it does. So you've got the G2 crowds of the world, obviously, that give, you know, the badges um, that are all user or generated, which give more, more validity than just any software company or any B2B company just kind of pounding their chest and saying, we're the best, right? So I, I really do love the fact that, and I think you're one of the few software companies that has on the resource page, literally, here's from our clients, what they're doing, what's working, what's not working, right? And it almost, I love that it's, it's kind of an attack on the, the blah case studies. Case studies, you know, of course, someone's going to say something good in a case study. <laughs> you, know? you, you, don't, you don't call out to someone as a, as a right evangelist and say, hey, on this case study, make sure you mention all the bad things that have gone wrong with us, right? Support tickets and issues and et cetera, et cetera. No one does that, right? And I think when we have enough savvy, you know, buyers these days which I want to get into a question for you about buyers. So I'm on the fourth floor going, I'm a Gen Xer. So I'm getting in my forties, getting into my fifties. Don't know if you're in, in a millennial, I presume you are, but <laughs> generational workforce is changing. And in decision buyer committees for SaaS products, it's changing. Just had a call with a, a, call, a peer colleague of yours, like SVP of marketing for Terminus yesterday. And he mentioned this, he goes, listen, we've got to make sure we're communicating in the right channels and with the right kind of messaging and community building or what have you, because decision makers are not baby boomers anymore that want to be taken out to golf or a, a fancy dinner. These are folks that are now, you know, looking at maybe millennials that are coming into director level positions or senior level positions 
or Gen Xers like myself that have had their foot both in pre-internet, like before there was the internet and fax, I remember those days, into what we are now, where literally everything is on our, you know, on a device, right? On our phone. So what do you think as the founder of, of, of Lemlist, you know, as a, a kind of a forward-thinking SaaS founder, how are how are you trying to address the future decision makers or buying committee? I think it's I think you made some really, really good points in in the fact that things are changing. So taking someone to dinner or to golf, uh, obviously, like first of all, within COVID time, it's it's not even possible now. So, that's impossible. So <laughs> it's that, that's the first thing. But as things are going to get back to like the new normal, if we can call it like this, I feel like you know, people are love transparency. So for a lot of time, you know, like uh, we saw really big brands and the biggest brands of all time, you know, like we keep lying to the, to the consumers and, and we are seeing trends where transparency is really important because whenever you're buying a software, a product or a service, the psychological, like I would say aspect of it is you buy from people you trust you admire or you respect and to build that trust with people transparency is key or your brand and what you're building as a company is going to be the key and your brand is not just the logo you know on your website it's how your customer service like support the clients how the marketing is writing about certain topics how the ceo is behaving just look at elon musk elon musk is going to make one announcement the stock market is going to go super hop super down like it's, it's crazy, and, but this is the reality. The reality is that as things, you know, like as times go by, like it's not possible anymore to say, put like a, a big sign outside and saying, we are the best, this is us, buy us, buy us, buy us, buy us. And the one with the most money will, will win. It doesn't right. work like this. Nowadays, yeah. anyone can become an influencer. As you said, you know, you have everything on one single device. You have people who are 18 who are like, multi-millionaires on TikTok or Instagram and things like that. And the reason why is like anyone with a device right now can be a creator or can become a creator. So in the long run, we see that the way we build relationships as human has totally evolved. 10 years ago, like social networks, okay, we had Facebook, but yeah, that's it. You know, it was the very beginning. Now you can look at every single vertical, the dating, the way we we meet with others, like a networking app, LinkedIn, all these type of things, everything has changed. And because everyone's hiding behind, you know, like this type of the best image you want to showcase of your company, what you're doing, et cetera. I think that we're getting back to something much more natural, like the, the transparency, the fact that we're, we're not flawless, that it's important to be vulnerable, showing like, okay, shit happens. It's okay to say it, you know, it's okay to say like, you're not perfect. And, but I think that the companies, especially with, as you were mentioning also, you know, with SaaS booming, you know, with COVID and companies trying to transition towards something more digital as we go. I feel really like the barrier to entry into the SaaS world is going down, but going down dramatically, meaning like, Five or 10 years ago, you wanted to build a website. Many businesses would go and go through an agency. Now, everyone knows about like Wix, Webflow, WordPress, all these type of things. 
then you are going to have like right now the exact same C4 SaaS. You have like a company like even like Webflow, Bubble, like all these type of no code, Zapier that allows you to do yeah, Airtable, all these type of things. You can connect and create a SaaS that you can sell. And the fact that the entry barrier is so low right now and it's going to just keep going down will force SaaS to become a commodity. And if SaaS is a commodity, the only differentiator you're going to have is who are you? You know, like, who are you as a company, as a person, as an individual, or as like a group of person working at a company? And your who will become your brand. And your brand will be what will help you connect, I think, on a much deeper level with your customers, users. And I really see the market evolving like this. And I think it's a great thing because to me, if you can connect, you know, like Elon Musk, for example, yeah. We like him, we don't like him. It, it doesn't matter. Like the, the fact is, this guy is inspiring. He's doing things that no one thought of, is taking risk and is inspiring like for millions of entrepreneurs out there. So to me, he's doing a good job, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. It makes me think you just mentioned him and you mentioned something in one of, in your cold calling uh, uh, seminar for your cold, call, uh, cold email, sorry, cold emailing seminar for the course which was very well done, by the way. Um, I think that that neuro, kind of the neural network of connecting with people in authentic ways through things like LinkedIn and through community building like Facebook, it, it is what, you know, has been prevalent in the last, you know, maybe five years, but more so because of COVID that really accelerated as well. For those companies like yourself that doubled down on community and content, you know, they, they, they saw that as a window or an opportunity to do so. And they've done well, Lemless included. When you think about like the Elon Musk's of the world, these are category designers, right? So you're, we were talking just a few minutes ago about the no code future of SaaS, right? I think there was the, you know, Anderson mentioned SaaS is eating, you know, software is eating the world was a famous quote by him. But then someone did another quote, I don't know who it was, anonymous, I don't know, but it was an AI is eating software. And then Scott Brinker, the VP of platforms at HubSpot, I was fortunate enough to have him on as a guest too. And he said almost exactly what you said. So now we're going into the next decade of SaaS and the evolution that he thinks is coming is no code, you know, more no code type platforms, right? Ecosystems. Also the fact that we're all becoming augmented sales leaders, augmented marketers, because now we have AI or no code. Plus there still has to be that human element, right? People go to Lemlist and hey, Lemlisters, because, you know, there's a persona behind that, a, a founder like yourself and your other co-founders, right? And so part of what I think you're saying that resonates is that, you know, to differentiate yourself, because if we're going down the path of becoming a commodity, then if you're not a if you're not a building a community, you will fall into a commodity, right? And so yeah. uh, that's great. It, you know, I I, th I think that it, it's it's easier said than done as well. And you're you know you're a testament to that because it's taking you guys five years of blood, sweat, and tears. I'm sure, right? Of having to put the time and effort. And and speaking of that, what if there was like a pie? What time and uh, what uh, percentage of that pie? Do you feel that SaaS founders, and maybe in your experience, has to be spent on that brand affinity and community building versus the other, which is obviously like SaaS metrics of, you know, CAC and 
the KPIs around ARR, MRR, you know, you name it, anything Nathan Lacka would ask you, how much of that <laughs> is, you know, SaaS metrics versus let us build a community and brand? To be honest, I think it's, I think most CEOs are afraid to talk to their customers. Right now, like we, we started three years ago. So in 2018, we are at like, we have crossed $8 million in ARR. Mm-hmm. We're growing at a two digit month over month growth rate. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't know anyone at that stage that would do the amount of customer interview that I'm doing. So right now, even with the course, I'm doing, you know, like this uh, one-on-one coaching for the one that, uh, that kind of like purchased in first. And for me, this is 100 people that I'm meeting. So 50 hours of my time. You could say like, you're the CEO, you could spend your time like way differently, et cetera. But no, because the relationship I'm building with this person is just unique, helping them you know, like putting my hands into what they are doing and trying to give them the best advice possible so they succeed. And to me, like this is your only and sole purpose as a CEO. It's to inspire your employee to do the same, but also lead with example. And this is what I'm trying to do. You know, like it's, I believe that, you know, people who are just telling what to do in the, it can work at first, but in the long run or when shit hit the fan, people will start be defying, you know, like about you and say like, yeah, but you're saying to do X, but you're not doing it. And they are true, you know, like they are right. And for me, it's like when, when she hit the fan, because it always happened, I need to be there, you know, and I to be, okay, I'm going to fix the fan. Don't worry. You know, like I'm there. (laughs) And, and for me, this is super important. So if we had to spend like, kind of like a timeframe, I think like to me, at least like, it would be maybe like, a third of your time should be about like your community, your users, the person that are like, you know, like that, that will build the future of your company. And then another 30% is on your team. I would say like 10%, 10 to 15% on vision, strategy, et cetera. And the rest would be more about like metrics, making sure that business is running, et cetera, et cetera. But really this big chunk, I think it's, it should be equal the amount you spend with your team and helping your team grow to what you're doing with your users. Because if you stop talking with your, with your customers, eventually you lose a sense of what's going on. Because eventually, like, yeah, at first I was running sales prospective campaigns every single week. Now it's, it's more difficult for me to do it. I try to keep, you know, like a hand in it, running networking, this type of things, but I don't have as much time. So instead of that, what I do is I go meet my customers, understand like where they are struggling. I give them actionable tips that they can start doing. And then after that, I know whether or not it worked. And and for them, if they are successful, I'm successful. Because if you're using a product and you're having like the best ROI because someone taught you how to do it and why would you quit? Why would you like stop using it? It it doesn't make sense. You know, it doesn't make sense. It's like built-in NRR. If you want your net retention revenue numbers to look good, then you have to spend that time to understand what the customers are using it or not using it. Because underutilization of software is huge, you know. And, yeah. and, talk, and we're talking about even with the big boys, Salesforce, you know, gets underutilized. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and, then, and then you got users who complain about, man, these licenses are super expensive. And you know, four years, five years ago, they went from classic to to their new version, and it's even more expensive. And so I love that you're saying that as a high, you know, bootstrapped, I would say mid to hyper growth company at 8 million ARR, you know, that you're still seeing that you've got to keep an, an eye on, on, on what the user is, is uh, you know, 
experiencing it, experiencing, sorry. So you can then, you know, I'm presuming have the feedback loop to your product development team, think about the roadmap of the software and so forth. And, you know, many CEOs or co-founders of SaaS companies sometimes get lost because they get thrown into maybe more of the financial and venture capitalist world of we have to get around, you know, a series B and, or whatever. And, and your, your time gets sucked into that. So you seem to have deliberately with your founders, your co-founders decided to know we're going to grow at our own pace. That allows you to have that time and, and, and not maybe not the, the stresses, sorry, of having to look for VC money. Right. Uh, is that a right presumption? Yeah, absolutely. Are- and, and to be honest, like I, a lot of my friends are CEOs of company who have raised like hundreds of millions, etc. And, and I know that their role is not something that I envy, to be honest, because they've been so far and, and I've met like people, you know, who have raised really like a lot of money and that totally failed their company because they lost the sense of what are their customers doing? They were, because at some point, you know, like if you raise a lot of money, and you get the press, you get everything. It, it shows that you are successful. So in the mind of everyone, you are successful. And when you are successful and you see all that press, I think it's very difficult to show to others that you are wrong. Being wrong is not an issue. Like I love being wrong, but the truth is like the, the more successful your company become, the more you feel that you always need to be right, which is not the right behavior to have, but it's still a feeling, you know, it's like... A, as a lot of people, you know, when they become successful, feels like they have entirely changed and that they can't be wrong. And, and that's why, you know, CEOs stop talking to their users because it's facing the truth. And the truth will tell you that this feature sucks and that this shouldn't happen like this and that actually you were wrong. So you don't want to hear about it. So you prefer, you know, like focusing on your team, telling them what to do, what the long-term vision but obviously, like the long-term vision is always nice, you know, like same for us. We want to be a unicorn in three years. Oh yeah, that's super exciting. Yeah, mm-hmm. but how, how are we going to get there? You know, it's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for that, you have to put the work and you have to do the things that are, that are not, that you don't always appreciate because it shows you that you are wrong, et cetera. So to me, if you want to build like a really successful business from what I've learned is always put your ego aside. You shouldn't have ego in business. You should be happy to be wrong because being wrong means you're learning something. And to me, like this is, uh, this is what I'm trying to, you know, to, to educate the team about the fact that we're always learning. Spending time with our customers is our biggest asset. And the fact that they want to spend time with us is even better. You know? And this is, again, an interactive process that should never stop no matter how big you are. Yeah, I love that. I love that sentiment and amen, hallelujah, and more power to you that you have that mentality because I think you're right. Brian Halligan from HubSpot, you know, the founder, CEO, you know, in, in a few inbounds, maybe two inbounds ago, when we could actually be at Boston and be in inbound, at inbound, sorry, he mentioned that the new selling is helping and that the companies that are growing exponentially like the Amazons of the world, like the Netflixes, are because they care more about how they're servicing their customer and customer base or future customer base more than their actual product. And so a lot of that is a reflective of what you're saying. And, and they're obviously like at unicorn stages, right? Those two. So, so, so you guys, will, I'm sure we'll get there with that kind of north, true North guidance that you guys have as a mentality. So awesome. What about, now that we're talking about sort of unicorns and VCs, 
Now, 2020 saw a lot of activity from Zoom and, and its IPO, you know, to hop in in the virtual space, buying StreamYard, to you name it. There's just, just so much, right? And I would imagine that the temptation, right? Like you got the little angel here and the little devil here talking to, to G, you know, after board, after meetings with your team and maybe even some partner, not investors, but some partners that want to help you guys. How has that been? And, and I know you guys recently said no to a 30 million VC funding opportunity. So Walk us through that. Yeah. So first of all, like the, the reason why we said no, it was to show to the world, which was something very important to me is to explain to people that you don't need funding to be successful. I'm not against people who are raising funds. I'm not against companies and VCs, et cetera, because I think in many cases, it's super helpful. I'm just yeah. saying that raising funds is not the solution to a business problem. And that a lot of people believe that because they have their article in TechCrunch, that that's it, you know, now I become a new CEO. I don't have to talk to my customers. I don't have to take care of sales. I don't have to do marketing. I don't have to take care of the brand. This is the biggest issue. And another issue I see because I, you know, I've coached so many entrepreneurs among the years, et cetera, is that people waste so much time trying to raise funds when they're not at the right stage, whether if they focus on profitability. And the reason why I'm saying that is not like I'm judging as I was in the same spot, you know, like for me, I spent two weeks because, you know, like I get bored fast. So I was just, okay, <laughs> fuck it. I'm going to be focused on my business. But I saw people, you know, wasting six or eight months of their life trying to raise funds instead of, you know, like just go talk to your customers, go build a product, go try to do something, you know, that's going to be helpful, bring value. And, and to me, it's so frustrating to see that, that because I know that when you get to that stage where you're highly profitable and you do things like publicly, funds will come to you. Like for us, we have like VCs and funds reaching out to me, like between three to five funds every single week. Right. And, and this is because, you know, I've done things publicly. Every time I write an article about our metrics, I know I'm going to receive 20 messages. But this happened. And the day where we want to raise, we'll be able to do it. So what, right. I, what I thought is, okay, I'm going to document a process of fundraising. And once we receive the offer, we're going to say no, just to show to the world that it's okay, you know, to say no, because you can run your company the way you want. You can be highly profitable, take dividends every single year, and it's not because you raise, because something also that's quite funny is that a lot of people think that companies who raised a lot of money make the richest founders, which is actually totally untrue. Mm -hmm. It's like whenever you go with a VC, they will not be happy if you take dividends at the end of the year. They will want you to reinvest everything in the business. So you're never going to do that. Whenever you're going to want to increase your salary, they're going to say, oh, yeah, we need to discuss about it. So you're going to feel bad. And a lot, of, a lot of VCs tell me, you know, like, no, we, we never force founders not to increase their salary. But what the founder says is, yeah, but, you know, you have the VCs, so they undervalue themselves. And they say, yeah, it's okay, you know, like, I want to be in the game. I want to, okay, invest everything in the business. So my salary is the last thing, you know. But the truth, it's not that, you know, like, you're taking risk. You should take high salary. You should pay yourself really well, get a lot of money because you're working hard and you deserve it. And yeah. I think like you allow yourself to do that when you're the owner of your company, you're highly profitable and you're growing. But again, you know, I think it's, we never like, we never, we're not saying that we will never raise money sure. or anything like, like never that. Never say never, but, exactly. but you also yeah. know that you're profitable. 
being privately funded, meaning bootstrapped, you're, you're, you're in your own, you're your own investor, if you will. Exactly. Yeah. And you, when you said that, you reminded me of, in, in, you know, Rand, Rand Fishkin's book, he talks about that, where he goes, also the pressure when you get VC money is now they want a 10x or a, or a 5x or 10x, right? So now the pressure becomes exponentially more. And yeah. goes back to what you're saying. Now and you for become- rent, for rent, it was terrible because he received an initial investment and he got actually like a acquisition offer from HubSpot because he was getting on really well with them at the time. The offer was around like $25 million and he had to say no. He wanted to do it, but the investors had put in the contract a block stop. So it's essentially like a clause that will forbid you to sell if, if you know, they're not happy with the price, which they were not. And what a valuation. Yeah, and afterwards Moe's went down. You know, it it didn't. It was not the same competitive. It's yeah. it was not as competitive as Ahrefs or as SM Rush. So this yeah. they were number one in the market, which was a new market SEO at the time, etc. And mm-hmm. they started like losing market shares. And and for him it was terrible because mm-hmm. his wife had like a, I think a cancer or something. So you know, like you never know what can happen in life. Yeah. You it's good to have saving and good, you know, like to. To also like, yeah, have money on the side. But if you have too much pressure from someone from the outside, yeah, shit can go south. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm glad that you're sharing that because there's other obviously founders that are in your predicament. They're trying to grow. They're 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 hitting maybe a fork where now they're at X number of ARR, you know, millions, and they're thinking, should we get VC money? How can we do this? Right. But there's alternative, there's other ways, right? And if they reach out to Nathan Latka, he'd probably be more than happy to <laughs> give them some funding, right? Yeah. I, I love like what Nathan has done too. He's, he's a bit of a genius and how he's created his own community, how he's built businesses from it. Right. But getting back to you and Lemlist. So now Lemlist is in a category, subcategory. I don't know what to even call it, because I think that's another thing I want to ask you. So SaaS, as it's grown and matured, I think is starting to bleed where you have, you know, different types of SaaS platforms that could almost, you know, ser- serve the same purpose because they, they do, you know, market animation or sales personalization or intent data, et cetera, et cetera. How do you see Lemlist sort of fitting in or evolving or, or differentiating themselves from the others that are out there? What, what, what guides you to think this way for you and your team? I think an analogy that I really like to make is just next door, I have two restaurants. One restaurant is the food is really like perfect but the owner is a real jerk. Like he talks trash to the waiters. He like uh, throws things at them. Like it's really, really bad. Like the way he treats uh, waiters. And on the next side, there is a restaurant where the food is not as good. But you know, like the first time I went there, the guy asked me my name. The second time I went there, it was like, hey, G, what's up? You know, and, and then, you know, like whenever I need to go and eat something, I'm like, where should I go? And then, yeah, it's my choice is made. I'm going to the place where I feel the most comfortable. So the, the question I have, you know, it's like all these shops and experience you're feeling in the real life, how can you transfer that to the software world? Because in the end, if the customer service is really good, if the product does the job, and if the content you get, the training you're getting, and all these things, you know, like makes you someone, something, or that people want to connect with, then you won because you're ahead of the competition. It's, it's exactly the same of why do I buy an iPhone versus Samsung? You know, it's like, 
yeah, like how this brand makes me feel, you know, this is important. Like when I see like how Apple reveals, you know, like I bought the 12 Pro when it was live, like the, the next day I bought it, even though it's exactly the same as the 11 Pro, like they haven't changed a single thing or maybe one thing, but the features, I don't care. It's just like, oh yeah, you know, the corners are a bit different. I love that. <laughs> it's, and, you, you, yeah. you, bought, you bought into that you're uh, you're a fan of, of of their technology, and maybe now also you know Apple now is going after Facebook sort of way in a way with the opt out. So for no tracking and reselling and the whole situation that's happening with cookies. So I kind of love that you brought in iPhone or Apple because Apple, as you know, obviously was a category designer or disruptor. Hey, they weren't the first ones to come out with uh, cell phones at scale. Nokia was. These Swedish guys, you know, in Scandinavia, <laughs> from Europe and your neck of the yeah. woods, right? These were the geniuses that they made the Motorola's and, and, the, and the Nokia's back in the day. Yeah. You, know, you took a flip phone or a razor and you thought you were cool. But Steve Jobs was a marketing genius and a, and a kind of like a, 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 uh, a, a future teller, a futurist, where he saw where the users hadn't even seen in terms of being able to have something that you could have on your hand and be able to give you everything, right? With apps and what have you and created the whole iOS system and et cetera. But so as, as your analogy is that, that, yes, there are other vendors out there that could do what Lemless does, but it's also the experience, the customer journey that you're giving them, the not just the software, but the whole experience with the community, the, the learned lessons, the transparency. So yeah, that's true. And those, those are real, I think, advantages, especially in a world where you know, we're becoming closer and closer to no code. And we're because of that, maybe then a buyer is looking at, well, what is the value? Why should I be paying X, X per license? If it's really, it's not like they, they're, they're, they're doing tons of programming investments on their end. Right. So that's interesting. You say that, you know, I know we're getting close to the top of the hour. So I do also have a, like a, a rapid fire section where I ask you some, some stuff that, that I think is going to be neat for the listeners. But before I get to that, is there anything that you, you know, that you're currently looking at in the market and saying, you know what, this is where disruption is needed, you know? Yep. <laughs> and what is that if you want to share? Yeah, it's uh, essentially, and it goes hand in hand with uh, what Lemlist is doing and where we could really grow is if you look at CRMs, first thing is no one likes CRMs. Like I've never heard someone saying I'm having a blast on Salesforce. Like no one, like literally no one on earth. Right. Yeah, no, and, no, no. Like they say, no kid ever said when I grow up, I want to be a Salesforce administrator. <laughs> right. No kid ever said that. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and again, like CRMs, you know, it's like customer relationship management. However, a lot of people put their leads into it, put the, the prospects, so why is it called customer? You know, like it means that there is a huge market that is for this specific part and where no one is actually there. So for me, there is a huge category to create in that space that is not a CRM, that looks like a CRM, but it's much more like the, where the interface is much nicer because right now, like what we have, whether it's like Pipedrive, Salesforce, HubSpot, they all have limitations. People are frustrated. I don't have like the answer because I think it's like a, a million or billion and multi-billion dollar, you know, answer. But yeah. still, I know this is a space I'm getting like more and more interested in because I'm feeling that there is something there. And I know that our community are struggling with CRMs 
and I know that we can do something about it. So hey, listen, I, I second you on that. I mean, I've used HubSpot. I'm using Active Campaign. There's Marketo. There, there's a number of them, right? And then obviously the big pound, the eight thousand pound gorilla for B two B enterprise, which is Salesforce, right? You're almost like you have to have Salesforce, or else you're not you're not in the game, right? Yeah. And I agree that as we're moving to more of this, how can we become even more personalized, and how can we create really community? The UI, the platform has to change with that. It's not going to be an easy change because, as you know, change management, especially at enterprise level, is it's like watching um, paint dry. You know what I mean? It's slow, <laughs> right? You yeah. think you think there's like five decision maker committee in in like SMBs to mid market? There's like thirty, right? Plus legal counsel, plus blah blah blah, uh, CTO, CIOs, you name it, right? When it comes to enterprise level, right? So it's harder, but I like what you're saying because I too have experienced throughout the years this discomfort with CRMs and also the fact that I think even CRMs, I'm talking back in like the 90s, like even before like the, the Salesforce became the go-to, people would, you know, hire IT teams to create their own CRMs and call it customer relationship management. But it was really just kind of a Rolodex, you know, digitally, and you're still, you know, playing a numbers game. You know, how many people can I send something out to cold you know, and, you know, where, where do the numbers land on open rates and click throughs and all that. And I think we're getting more and more savvy and more mature as buyers, as well as, as sales and marketers, in that we don't just want to have metrics or fluff numbers for the sake of having metrics and fluff numbers, right? So I'm glad that your, 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 your team is thinking of that. And it'll be interesting what you guys can kind of come up with, right? But I think Lemlist does a great job at, on, on, on the personalization, which is key, and, and trying to make authentic personalization via Lemlist at, at scale, which I know is kind of the core of what Lemlist does. So that's, that's awesome. So let, let me get right into the uh, rapid fire questions. You ready? Okay. Right. So like I said, on the fourth floor, Back to the Future was a franchise I loved watching as a kid. So if you, Mr. G, could jump back on the DeLorean and with Marty and Doc and speak to a younger G, what would you tell him? Or Start us sooner. You learn so much more by starting your own business than by going to school. And I've done a lot of studies, so I can tell. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's some pretty good advice. And I, I said, I, I believe leaders are readers. And so what are some books, and they don't have to be business books that have inspired you or has, you know, sort of shaped, formed you a little bit in your journey. I really liked Lost and Founder from Ren Fishkin because when I read it, I was at that time where, you know, like being a CEO can be like a, a very lonely journey. And knowing that other people are lonely or I've seen a lot of like ups and downs and fucks up, like makes you feel good, you know? So this was, this was one I really enjoyed. Also enjoyed like the, ah, uh, I forget the, it's from Mark Roberts. I think it's sales engagement formula or something like the one, the Mark Roberts was a HubSpot and essentially it's, it's pretty like a short book, but well done on the hiring side of things and, and really enjoyed it. Like, and, and then like, I have actually all my books over there. Maybe I can find yeah, the hard thing about hard things was really great. Yeah, yeah, that's a good book too. Yeah. So now those are all great books. Is there right now any app or sport hobby that you do to you know recharge, reboot? I mean, I can imagine you're super swamp busy, building the community, managing your team, your development team, your sales team, working with your co-founders. What does G do to unwind? I, I run, I run a lot. I, I, I do a lot of heat training. So high intensity interval trainings, I uh, cycle. So I, I wanted to, uh, 
to do an Ironman next year. So I need to, to start doing like triathlon. <laughs> awesome. Hey man, that's great. I love that. Maybe you could uh, reach back out to Noah, you know, Noah every summer does this bike thing. He's a okay. bike biker. Nice. But his, I don't know is uh, what kind of biking you do, but his biking, it seems to be more kind of like the off-road biking okay. you know, kind of trails. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he always does a, a cool event where he, you know, invites other SaaS founders as well, I think. So you might want to reach out to him. But that's awesome. So biking to unwind. And do you find that when you're doing that physical activity and I do soccer for me, for example, right, that I, I kind of just forget about anything and everything related to business. And sometimes you get aha moments and clarity about something and you weren't even thinking about it. Is that true for you? Or what, what does that feel like when you're in that activity? I try to focus on my breathing. Otherwise, I'm going to die. <laughs> No, but it's, it's true that sometimes, you know, like, but my moment of clarity and how moment to be entirely transparent, they always happen when I'm uh, doing the dishes. I have like a dishwasher, but I, I never use it because first I think I like having like really hot water and cleaning because it's the satisfaction of removing something dirty and making it clean. I think it does the same with my mind. You know, it's like lots of things and everything becomes clean and clear. And then I've got like uh, awesome ideas. Hey, man, I love that. Now, this is one from Latka. Married, single, uh, kids, no kids. What's your status? Single and uh, no kids that I know of. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you did travel to uh, Colombia, Bolivia, and so you might have un, un chiquito en Sudamérica. No sabe. Colombiano, Boliviano. Sí. <laughs> no sé, no sé. No sabe. Well, no, this is great. Now, was there anything... I didn't ask you that we, you know, you'd like to discuss anything that you want to. No, just like if there are any young entrepreneur, like you, you might feel the imposter syndrome. So you don't feel like legitimating the things you do, like, and it doesn't care. The, what matters is to start doing human being, you know, are like uh, momentum animals. So what matters is to get started. The first step is going to put you in discomfort but it will allow you to make the second step easier and the third step easier and so on and so forth. So take that first step. Don't be afraid and let's go have fun. I love it. That's great advice. You're right. Momentum. Just keep going and start. It's like when you go to a gym, the first day, the first week sucks, but then you start building momentum. So I love that. And so, you know, gee, it's been an, a pleasure, a true pleasure and a blast. And I could talk to you for hours, I'm sure, but out of respect of your time, I won't. So tell me how folks can contact you and learn about more, you know, personally to reach out to you as well as to learn about Lemlist. So for the website Lemlist, it's lemlist.com. You can get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Just type G dot <laughs> and you will, uh, you will find me. And uh, you can also reach out to me via email. So it's Guillaume at Lemlist.com. I guess we'll just write this down in the notes because it's a, it's a yes. French name. I will have all that in the show notes. <laughs> D-U-I-L-L-A-M-E, but we'll have it on the notes. So G again, thank you so much for being an awesome guest for Smart Chickens, our podcast. And look, we look forward to um, continued growth. And, you know, I'm part of your, your group too. So I'm, I'm going to be one of those 50 hours. I'm, awesome. I'm excited. I'm excited for that. Yeah. Looking forward thank to it as well. <laughs> thanks. Thanks again. Thanks a lot, Jenny. Make sure to follow and subscribe to Smart Chickens podcast at digitechie.com slash smart dash chickens and all podcast channels. If you get value from our podcast content, make sure to leave a review, share and connect with our host, Johnny Quintana on LinkedIn.